you would turn in the Psalter hymnal in the back to page 21, Lord's Day 14. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word that we received today. Thank you for the fellowship of your table. Thank you for blessing us as your people, as a local congregation whom you love, whom you are bringing to completion, whom you will not forsake. Help us, Lord, we pray, to live in thankfulness and gratitude for all that you have given us and blessed us with. And bless us now in our our catechism hour. May we grow in our knowledge and understanding of the Christian faith. May our joy and happiness for what we have received increase. May we desire to be defenders of the faith, and may we desire to share this body of doctrine with others. And so help us, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so just by way of brief review, we, remember we are in the second section of the catechism, has three sections. We usually start them off with G. First section is... Let's try that again. First section is... Ooh, that was good. Second section is... No, let's start over. Ready? First section is... Okay, let's start over. First section is... Guilt. Start with our guilt. We start with the bad news, guilt. Then the good news is... Grace, right. We can't live in gratitude (laughs) until we have the grace. And the grace is given to us through Jesus Christ. And then the third section is gratitude. Gratitude. What we heard today, we live in thankfulness. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Uh, You can also, I've heard it summarized, sin, salvation, service is another way of of looking at it. Uh, The grace section, the middle section, goes through the Apostles' Creed. And that is a huge blessing for us as God's people because, as you remember, uh, the creeds are, are, are written in the first few centuries of the Christian church. And the, the reformers in the 16th century, the early reformers, were very sensitive to making sure that people understood that we're connected to the ancient church, that the Reformation isn't some new thing. And sometimes I think this is hard for us as American Christians to appreciate, because uh, we, you know, we came out from under the yoke of uh, a monarchy that was tyranny, and uh, we had a revolution. And it's kind of built into our psyche a little bit and our psychology as a nation to, uh, to be new and innovative. And there are places where that's good, but other places where that's bad. And we need to always uh, remember the anchor that we have in the past, particularly with regard to Christianity. And so uh, they, in, reformers in no way said, we're going to just scrap the creed because that's medieval and Roman Catholic. Um, no, remember, they're trying to reform the church. They're not trying to create a new church. Uh, the, the new covenant church begins at Pentecost. The, the church proper begins all the way back in Genesis 3. But the new covenant church begins at Pentecost, and then it progresses. And... Uh, you know, we, you, you enter into what's called the medieval era after the fall of the Roman Empire. You know, so from around you know, the 6th century or so, you have the medieval era. But the, and then the Reformation comes in the 16th century, uh, and we all know the story. But the, it's important that we understand that the creeds, they root us in basic biblical doctrine, and those predate the medieval era. 
And the reformers were very sensitive to that. And that's why they included an exposition of the Apostles' Creed in that uh, second section, the grace section. So that's what we've been going through uh, week by week, line by line. Um, I always throw out there just for, just for our own encouragement that the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, an older uh, uh, catechism than the Westminster Shorter, as much as I love the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the Heidelberg has certain features that I think are better, and this is one of them, uh, that it exposits the Apostles' Creed. Uh, unfortunately, the, the, uh, the, the Westminster Shorter, which came in the 17th century, you know, almost 100 years later, uh, did not. So we are in that, we're on that line <clears throat> about the Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So we remember the Apostles' Creed, right? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So let's look at this catechism question today. Question 35. What does it mean that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? The eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, a truly human nature, so that he might become David's true descendant, And then question 36, how does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? He is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness, he removes from God's sight my sin, minds his eyeless conceived. Okay, so we want to think about this a little bit. Uh, born of the Virgin Mary, what, what's the big deal? Uh, about that. Um, that's, first of all, we have to recognize that that's uh, an essential doctrine in Christianity. The doctrines that are confessed in the Apostles' Creed, same thing, Nicene Creed, uh, those are, the, those are the, the deal breakers. If you deny any of those, uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, um, you know, the, the communion of saints, you do not have Christianity. You have a different religion. And so the, these are non-negotiables. Uh, you know, the, 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 the West and the East, Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, Roman Catholicism, and then the Protestant Reformation, which came out of Roman Catholicism. You know, West and East go back to the very beginning. And all branches confess the Apostles and Nicene Creed. Uh, if you don't confess those, it's a different religion. And included in that is this doctrine of the virgin birth. And it may not seem like such a big deal at first. You know, uh, and, it, and I think in our modern world, uh, living post-enlightenment, post-higher criticism, you know, post-modern world that we're in, um, it, it may seem like a fairy tale. It may seem a little crazy. I mean, we all know that babies aren't just conceived in a mother's womb, and that's what makes this so amazing, is that it's, it truly is a supernatural act of God that happened in history, and we want to think about the significance of it. It's been attacked uh, quite a bit, uh, certainly in the 18th century, you have what's called the Enlightenment, 
where uh, all, man's reason is exalted over uh, divine revelation. And so it's been said that, you know, for in antiquity, the question was, what has God said? And so that's, you know, that's all the centuries leading up to post-Reformation. There, there, people are, are debating, what has God said in his word? When you get into the 18th century and the rise of people like Immanuel Kant, uh, uh, George Hegel, Friedrich Schleimacher, uh, Enlightenment thinkers, um, Rene Descartes, yeah, the question now is not, what has God said? But has God really said? Has God really said these things? Now, who was the one that originally said, has God really said? Who's that? Satan. Did God really say, did God, did God really say that if you eat of the tree, you're going you're gonna to die? Did God really say that Jesus was born or of a virgin, you know, conceived in, in uh, the womb by the Holy Spirit. So you enter into uh, uh, modernity. Modernity is the, is the reversal of God's revelation and then human reason. Uh, now it's human reason exalted over God's revelation. Uh, uh, just as a side note, modernity, it said, ends, it ends in Europe in World War I. Uh, that's when the war that was supposed to end all wars didn't. People see all the horrors of man's ability to think his way out of things. Uh, now he just uses all the weaponry and technology against, him, against his neighbor, and, uh, and then you enter into post-modernity. Um, post-modernity doesn't hit us, most sociologists and, and historians say, until about the 1960s and the cultural divide uh, we seem to be going through something similar now. But in the 1960s, uh, with the Vietnam War, and uh, we're losing a war now all of a sudden, and you know, 50,000 men have died over 10 years in a war, um, now we enter into post-modernity. The question in post-modernity is not, has God really said? But who cares? Who cares? Who, who are you to tell me? What is truth? Who are you to tell me anything? And uh, we're just, we have no foundation. Um, the good side of that is that eventually you have to have some foundation, and so Christianity in some ways becomes more, uh, has an inroads. But anyway, I'm digressing all over the place. The virgin birth uh, is something that, uh, is, since the time of modernity, has been under attack and, and, and looked at almost like a fairy tale. And then you had the rise of uh, Protestant liberal theology in the 19th and 20th centuries, where, they, where they're calling into question the inerrancy of the Bible. So why is it important? Why is it necessary that we confess it? What do you think? What would be the first and most obvious reason? Just the most obvious reason, do you think? Okay, it's fulfilled prophecy. Yeah. Uh, what's the, what is the text? Can anybody, does anybody know the Old Testament text? that uh, speaks of a virgin being born? Uh, Micah talks about where he'll be born. Bethlehem. Yeah. It's good that you're thinking of... It's in Isaiah. Yeah, 7.14. Isaiah 7.14. We can look there really quick. I was going to say the most obvious reason. I I know sometimes when people ask you questions, they're like, well, I can think of a lot of things that are obvious. Um, The most obvious thing to me would be, well, the Bible says... But then, of course, we have to 
think of the theological significance, the practical significance to us. But Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And if you just you keep your hand there in uh, Isaiah 7, and if you look over at Matthew 1, Matthew 1, when, uh, where are we? Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Scandalous, scandalous, scandalous. Okay, She's pregnant, and they're not married yet. And her, Joseph husband, her, her husband Joseph, a little dyslexic this morning, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, uh, resolved to divorce her quietly. In those days, you could either say, you know, this woman's been unfaithful to me, and then she would be brought under discipline. Or uh, you could just divorce her quietly if you had mercy on her. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So she wasn't sleeping around. She will bear a son, verse 21, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. We talked about that a few Lord's days ago. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So this is what, Chris, you had brought up. And now look at verse 23. It's quoting Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then I love how Matthew, notice what he does there. He inserts the, um, the meaning, which means God with us. Emmanuel means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not. Gnosko is that word there. He didn't have intimate relations. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and she called his name Jesus. So the, old, the New Testament is interpreting the old. That's our method of interpretation. And yeah, it's a, it's a prophecy. Now, to be fair, there's, uh, there's been a lot of attack on... Isaiah 7, and even some Orthodox theologians have pointed out that the Hebrew word for virgin, which is Alma, um, it's, not, it doesn't, it's not limited to the, to the word, the meaning virgin. You know, there's words that have a, what we call a semantical range, you know. We have words that have several meanings. We do that in the English language, right? Um, you know, yeah, love. I mean, if, right, uh, if, if, Eric. If you go to uh, what's the brewery we like, Urban, and they come in and say, "Eric, good to see you. Thank you for patronizing us." And then you go home and you speak poorly to Debbie, and she says, "Stop patronizing me." Two different meanings, right? Two different meanings. One's blessing, one is not. Uh, so we have we call that semantical range. You know, a word that can mean different things, and and it's important to know the difference in in uh, scripture. So the word virgin in the Old Testament, the word Alma, can mean virgin or it can just mean young lady, not necessarily a virgin. Now, in the Old Testament, I think it's, it's used like nine or ten times, and it's, uh, it's always used in the sense of virgin. But in extra-biblical Hebrew writings, 
it can sometimes be used to, uh, to describe a, just a young lady. The point is, is some people will say, well, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a virgin. She may not have been a virgin. However, the New Testament says she was a virgin. It's making that very clear. So either this happened in Matthew 1 or it didn't. Either, either it's a, a record of historical acts or, it didn't, or we can't trust the Bible. It's one or the other. And then what's, what else is interesting, it's always important to see how the New Testament is interpreting the Old, right? So it's true that the Hebrew word Alma isn't restricted to the word virgin. However, the New Testament, in its interpretation of the Old, is using it in that sense. Now, what language was the New Testament written in? Greek. Yeah, Koine Greek, common in the first century. Old Testament's written in Hebrew. A little bit, a couple chapters in Aramaic, but otherwise Hebrew. By the first century, there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that's what all the apostles knew. That's what, that's what the, Jesus knew. It. Uh, what, we, what do we call that Greek translation of the Old Testament? Anybody know? The Septuagint, yeah. If you have a study Bible, you'll see it in your margin, and it'll say LXX, Roman numeral, yeah, for 70. Uh, 50, 10, 10. The 70 were the 70 scribes that worked on the translation. Very carefully done. The reason why the Septuagint can be important is that uh, we want to see how did, the, did they in, interpret how do they translate Hebrew words? And when they translated the word Alma, virgin, in the New Testament, um, they're using it in the sense of a, a, a virgin, not just a young lady. So the point is, this is how the New Testament reports what happened. That Mary was a virgin, she had no intimate sexual relations with any man, and she's pregnant. That's just crazy. That's just crazy. That doesn't happen. But neither do a lot of things happen. Uh, resurrections don't happen every day. I mean, it takes a, a supernatural act of God. Uh, creation doesn't happen. We all know that something cannot come from nothing. And yet at some point, something came from nothing. Uh, and God spoke it into being. And so if we have a problem with God conceiving the Jesus in the womb of a virgin, then we really have a, a problem with every other supernatural act. We should have a problem with the resurrection. We should have a problem with creation. So it's obviously a, a, a supernatural act of God, uh, and it fulfills this prophecy. Any questions on that before we move on? Okay. Uh, now, why does it matter? What's the deal? Why is it important? Well, there's three things that I want to point out. Um, one, the virgin birth testifies that God is with his people. That God is with his people. I mean, think about it for a moment here. God, God the Son, who exists from all eternity past, second person of the Trinity, God, immense, eternal, holy, omniscient, omnipresent, 
takes on human flesh, the creator becomes a creature. And he's now in utero, dependent on the life of his mother through an umbilical cord. God dwells with us, Emmanuel. The virgin birth testifies of this, that God takes up residence in a woman. That he's not just born the way all of us are born, or rather conceived. He was born the way all of us were born. He wasn't conceived the way all of us were conceived, you know, through a, a father and a mother, but rather through the Holy Spirit entering in to creation in the most intimate way and taking up residence in the uterus of a young woman. God with us. And all through redemptive history, we see God with us. Okay, We think of God being with Adam in the garden and then after the fall and God being with his people uh, in a mediated way uh, through the tabernacle and then all of this leading up to the things that the tabernacle and all the sacrificial system, the points of God being with his people, leading up to God taking up residence in the womb of a young woman, Mary. And, and what is the great promise or the great, what is the Bible all about? It's about God being with us. It's about God taking for himself a people. Uh, we find from Genesis to Revelation that echo of the great covenant promise, I will be your God, you will be my people. And then where does it all end up? You know, through, as we see redemptive history unfold, we go all the way into John's visions of the new heaven and new earth, and God is with his people, You're wiping away every tear. And so the, test, the, the, the virgin birth testifies of this. God entering in, entering into the world and taking up residence in the womb of a woman. That's the first thing that the virgin birth testifies of. He's not born the way, or he's not, I keep saying born, he's not conceived the way every, every other human being is conceived. It's extraordinary. Secondly, virgin birth of Christ testifies that salvation is a sovereign act of God. It's a sovereign act of God. As in all things in creation and redemption, God is the one who acts and not man. Uh, so man has no role in this. It is God who does this, God who acts. God is not only the initiator in salvation, but also the completer, as we heard from Philippians 1 this morning. He gives salvation. He doesn't cooperate with man. He doesn't say, I'll do my part, you do your part. He is the sovereign God who performs salvation. He is the one who provides the lamb, just as Abraham told Isaac as they walked up Mount Moriah. And the, the virgin birth, it testifies of this. It testifies that salvation is a sovereign act of God. It's a divine intrusion. And that's what the angel made clear to Joseph. He said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is not from a man, it's from the Holy Spirit. And so now, right here is where we have to be careful that we don't speculate on how exactly this happened. I mean, you know, you, you can, but you're not going to get very far. 
It's like trying to speculate how did God speak things into existence when he said, let there be light. Or how did God uh, resurrect Jesus Christ? Not just resuscitate, but resurrect him where his body is now transformed. I mean, there's, there's things in, that, that God does in redemptive history that we cannot explain. Uh, they are wondrous, and they are beyond the normal operations of his providence. That's why we say they're, they're supernatural, not just natural, they're, they're supernatural. And so this is something that God does in the virgin birth, but it shows that he is the one who is the actor in salvation. He is the one who is initiating. He is the one who isn't dependent upon us doing the work. Any questions there so far? Yeah, Chris. Abraham and Sarah, is that a, a picture of that? Absolutely. <laughs> There's several pictures of that. So think of it throughout redemptive history. Several times you have uh, people in the Old Testament who are barren, and a Christ-like figure, a savior-type figure, uh, is born into the world uh, by a woman who is otherwise barren. Um, so uh, Samson's mom. You know, Samson is a deliverer, even though he's obviously a big sinner. He nonetheless is a deliverer and a champion for Israel, for God's people, prefiguring Christ, and his mother is barren and cannot have children. But an angel comes and says, you will, you know, you will have one. Um, that happens again and again. Abraham's a big one. Abraham, with uh, uh, the birth of Isaac, uh, you know, Sarah is over 90 when you know, she finds out this information. He, he, and, and Abraham's obviously impotent. And, uh, but God says, I'm, go- I'm able to do this. That which is impossible with man is possible with God. And so all of, these, all of those uh, barren women giving birth to some prefigure type of Christ, like Samson or Isaac, uh, the promised son, um, th- those are all foreshadowing the one who would come and be born of a virgin. But none of them are born of virgins. You know, this is something obviously extraordinary beyond all those other extraordinary acts. And it makes sense. I mean, if Jesus Christ, if Jesus of Nazareth truly is the Son of God, then it makes sense that he would come into this world in an extraordinary way. And again, so if we have a problem with the virgin birth, I think our greater problem is with Jesus Christ, with him being the God-man and doing the things he's done. But yeah, great observation. Great observation. Other questions? Virgin birth, testifying that salvation is a sovereign act of God. All right, there's another thing, um, and that's that it testifies to the uniqueness of Christ's role. Because uh, we've already been through this a little bit, but who who is Jesus Christ? Uh, Who is Jesus Christ? It's not a trick question. Who, who is Jesus Christ? You're all Christians. I hope you're able to give an answer. This is a... Image of the invisible God? Yeah. And he is both God and man. Yeah, God and man. And the virgin birth testifies of that, doesn't it? That he is God, conceived by God, 
and man, born of Mary, born of a woman. He has all her DNA. Uh, he is totally dependent on her as uh, an infant, and yet he is at the same time God. And so this is probably the most important reason why the virgin birth is essential to historic Christian, or historic Christian faith. It testifies of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as the only mediator, and that's what the Heidelberg Catechism is getting at. It, it takes God and man to mediate between God and man. No man can be a mediator for other men because all men are sinners. Now, just as the first Adam, because remember, all of, all of redemptive history it comes down to those two Adams. The first Adam, who was, came into this world in an extraordinary way. How was the first Adam born, if you will? Again, not a trick question. You all remember this from Sunday school. He was made from dust. Remember that story? He was made from dust. And so, but then, you know, he, the, the story, he falls. He, became an, he, he came into this world in an extraordinary way. Not an, not an ordinary way. The, the second Adam, the last Adam, Christ, there's my picture of Jesus, violation of the second commandment, I know, um, is, uh, is, comes into the world in an extraordinary way. It makes sense. All of the human race is represented by the first Adam and then falls, of course, Last Adam, all of God's elect, all those whom the Father gave to the Son before the foundation of the world are represented by the last Adam who comes into the world in an extraordinary way, namely the virgin birth. But now this Adam has to be a mediator for those he's come to save. And the only way he can be a mediator between God and man is if he is both God and man. And the virgin birth testifies of that. The virgin birth testifies of the fact that he, he has come into this world, God, not conceived by man, and yet born of woman, like every other person. And so, as a mediator, um, the virgin birth, in that sense, is necessary. Any questions on, on that? That's really important. Right. Exactly. That's right. That's really important. You know, uh, um, no ordinary man could bear the weight of God's wrath upon the cross. We're talking about, you know, think of God's justice. A person suffering in hell for all their sins takes all of eternity to satisfy God's justice. The Son of God suffers the equivalence of that for every person he came to save. It's laid on him. And only God can, can bear that kind of weight. Uh, no, no man can do that, uh, as the Catechism says. And uh, no man can, no sinner, obviously, can pay for, for others. So he ha- as a mediator, he has to be both God and man. The virgin birth testifies of that. Take away the virgin birth, and it's an attack on the deity of Christ, the deity and humanity of Christ. He's both of those two natures in one person. Very important for us to, to understand. And then if he wasn't God, he wouldn't be a king. Right, exactly. Exactly. 
precisely. If he's not, God, if he's not man, he cannot be a, a kinsman redeemer. He cannot redeem us. He has to be both God and man. He has to be God to be able to bear the weight of our sin. He has to be man because God's justice requires that the same human nature which is sinned against God pays for that sin. But no man can do that, himself being a sinner. He has to be the God-man. The virgin birth is necessary in order for that to happen. Now, one thing, uh, and, and I should point out too, if, if, you're, if you're really interested in the virgin birth, probably the best book that's ever been written, in my opinion, uh, is uh, by J. Gresham Machen, uh, founder of Westminster Seminary in the 1930s and Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Everything that Machen writes is wonderful. And uh, he wrote a book called the, the, virgin, the virgin Birth of Christ. Fantastic book. And he shows you know, the history that by the second century, this was considered an orthodox doctrine that could, because there were attacks on it, you know. You had uh, people attacking the deity of Christ, like the Arians who came along a little later, uh, or the Ebionites. You had the, uh, the Docetists attacking the humanity of Christ, saying that Christ was God, but he only seemed to be a man. And uh, the orthodox are are arguing for the deity of Christ and the virgin birth, which testifies to his two natures. And uh, by the second century, it's, the, it's understood throughout Christianity as a, a cardinal doctrine. That's why it's codified in the ancient creeds. Um, but it's interesting, Machen points out in that book that you know, really the most important uh, application of the virgin birth is that it testifies of, his, of Christ's unique role as our mediator. Uh, now, sometimes it's argued that, well, you have to have the virgin birth uh, in order for Christ to be sinless. Because sin is passed on you know, from one generation to the next generation. And since he came into the world without a father, um, you know, he's sinless. He doesn't, he's not affected by that condition that the rest of the human race is affected by, called original sin. Um, now, there's, there's, a, there's a problem or two with saying that. Can anybody see a problem with saying that? Vincenzo, in inglese, per favore. <laughs> in Latin. Latin. <laughs> I have heard in Italy that uh, uh, since uh, Jesus uh, wasn't uh, conceived by a man, huh? There was no transfer of the sin from uh, uh, Adam to Christ, but it's true or is a, a theoretical? Uh, yeah, where does that idea come from? Anybody know? What's that? Seed of the woman. Okay. Um, well, I mean, let's think about it for a second. So Jesus, he has a he, earthly speaking, he has a father and mother, right? Um, yeah. Mother's name, these are not trick questions, guys. Mother's, mother's name is? Good, all right, were you with me? And then father's name is? Jojo, okay. Now, if we say that, um, well, if he had been conceived by Joseph, then he'd be a sinner. But it's okay that, that he's conceived in the womb of Mary. What, what are we saying? I mean, if God... If God could keep Christ sinless in the womb of Mary, who herself was a sinner, well, then surely he could keep Christ sinless 
if Joseph had conceived him. Everybody with me? So this has given rise to a, a doctrine in, uh, in the Roman Catholic Church called the Immaculate Conception. Well, because they're like, oh, yeah, you're right. If we say that if, it, if the virgin birth is all about Christ being sinless, well, then what about him being born of Mary? He became a little sinner in her womb. So we have to say, well, Mary, Mary was sinless. So they took it back a generation. And that's called the Immaculate Conception. Now that, of course, begs the question, what about Mary's mom and dad? What about Mary's mom? Well, we're not going to talk about that. And uh, so this is not the point of the virgin birth. I know you've all heard it this way. You know where this comes from? This comes from a, 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 the, we could talk all day about this, but it comes from the idea that sexual relations, even between a husband and wife, are some, somewhat sinful. You know that even the great, the great, great theologian, who I have so much respect for, Augustine believed that. That if you had, a man has intimacy with his wife, that in some way, shape, or form, that is sinful. That is not true. It is, it is only sinful, it is outside the covenant of marriage. Now, the reason why, we might say, well, why did Augustine believe that? He must have been crazy. I'm not going to read anything Augustine says. No, that's not true. Augustine was infected with something. And uh, his um, Manichaeanism and Neoplatonism and just all these strands of uh, bad theology that were running around in the uh, you know, fourth, second, third, fourth, fifth, six centuries that uh, taught that there's a dichotomy between uh, material and immaterial. You know, kind of like Gnosticism, uh, that uh, what's in the flesh is somehow inherently bad. And this developed over the medieval period in, in the Roman Catholic Church. And so it, a whole doctrine grew that, well, if, if Joseph and Mary had relations, then Jesus would have been born in sin. Well, that's not the point. That's not the point of the virgin birth. You, the, the point of the virgin birth isn't that he wasn't infected with original sin because Mary was a sinner. The point of the virgin birth is that he is both God and man. He is God conceived by the Holy Spirit, and he is man born of woman. Yeah, the Virgin Mary. The Virgin Mary. And Protestants ought not be ashamed of saying that. We need to reclaim Mary. Mary is blessed beyond all women. You don't lose your Protestant card by saying that. And again, you know, so often, you've got to go back to the early reformers. So often the later reformers overreact and we overreact. And um, Mary is blessed beyond all women. And there's really nothing wrong with even saying the blessed Virgin Mary. She is herself a sinner, but she points us to Jesus. And, uh, and, but she plays an important role. Uh, just as you have the first Adam and the last Adam, you have Eve and you have Mary. And God working out something through women also. She is the servant of God. She's not a, she's not a mediator, and we don't pray to her. But uh, she is by far... Uh, more blessed than, than all women and all human beings. If you think about it, she carried the God-man. And it's, and it's perfectly okay to say, Mary, the mother of God. Because who is Jesus? He's God. 
And if she's not the mother of God, then whose mother was she? Uh, it's not that God came into being in her womb. God has existed from all eternity past. But the moment of that conception, God and man become one, two natures, one person in her womb. Uh, the, but the virgin birth testifies uh, most supremely of Christ's mediatorship, that he is uh, God conceived in the womb by the Holy Spirit, man born of the Virgin Mary. Any questions on that? All convinced? Yeah, we also lose a lot of genealogies. <coughs> lose a lot of genealogies? Right. That's right. Yeah, it's interesting. By the way, the, virgin, the fact that he has, he's a virgin birth is also what, uh, in the writer of the Hebrews, is why he's picking up on Melchizedek, this mysterious guy who shows up out of nowhere with no genealogy. He's a real guy, uh, uh, lived in history, but purposely we don't know about his past because it testifies to the fact that Christ is conceived in the womb of, uh, of Mary supernaturally. Jennifer, you had your hand up. Is there any significance to the fact that Matthew says, um, and I just kind of have read this for the first time, but Joseph knew her not until after she gave birth? Yeah, absolutely. Um, because that would mean that the virgin birth would be compromised. Well, how do we really know that he's not the son of Joseph? Uh, knew her not means um, loved her not, you know was intimate with her. He obviously knew her intellectually, but didn't know. Which is really interesting, by the way. If anybody here heard um, the Arminian argument that predestination is based on God's, well, it's all based on God's foreknowledge, because it says those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And so, yeah, he knew intellectually who would put their faith, right? The word there is gnosko, knew, gnosko, an intimate knowledge. And uh, it's used here. Mary, uh, Joseph knew her not. Gnoscoed her not. I guess that's kind of a euphemism, isn't it? Um, he, he did not have gnosco relations with her. It's love. So God's predestination, when he's talking about those whom he foreknew, those whom he foreloved, in the same way you know, of, of intimacy between Joseph and and Mary. But yeah, getting to your question, I mean, if, if, if Joseph had slept with her before the child was born, there would always be that possibility that, well, maybe he's really not conceived by the Holy Spirit. He's conceived by Joseph. And so, other questions? Yeah. Some people believe that Mary maintained her virginity life. Yeah, a lot of the reformers even believe that, the perpetual virginity. Right, well, it says until she had... Well, I think the argument is, um, well, it's possible exegetically for that to mean um, he just didn't know her, you know, and there was this time where she was born. But yeah, I think it's weak. I think the stronger argument is that they had normal, natural relations, and, um, and he had brothers, half-brothers, you know. So I don't... The, the, the perpetual virginity of, of Mary is, 
is a pretty weak case to make. But see, it gets back to, it, honestly, Debbie, it gets back to the medieval notion that marital intimacy is somehow uh, evil. Now, it, it might have been, maybe it was Augustine, maybe I'm getting them confused, maybe Bill knows. Um, Jerome, one of them, it was either Jerome or Augustine, they both thought it was sinful, but um, one of them thought, if you are enjoying it, <laughs> then you're sinning. It was either Jerome or Augustine. You had to use this totally, in a utilitarian way, purely for procreation, and if there was any joy in the act, ah, you sinned. And uh, horrible way to live, right? Just can't even imagine. God has given us good things to enjoy. And the fact is, sex is one of them. And uh, sex in marriage, in the context of marriage. So all you husbands and wives, my pastoral advice for you today is to have lots of sex. And... uh, (laughs) Because it's good for your marriage. And if you think I'm being crass, then you have a problem with the book of Song of Solomon. Because God put a book in the Bible that's supposed to limit my amount of marital counseling. If you'll all read Song of Solomon and go apply that in your locked bedrooms, then uh, you will be happier. I have never met uh, a, a couple who is going through severe marital problems, broken relationship, who had... Uh, healthy sex life. They never say, oh yeah, yeah, you know, lots of that, but we just have a horrible relationship. Maybe that happens, but it's not the norm. And uh, so all of this is to reclaim. You didn't know you were going to hear a talk about sex today, but I guess the virgin birth, it kind of, that's part of it, right? Uh, I mean, it's it's in our creed. And so uh, what a great way to talk about the birds and bees with your kids just confessing the Apostles' Creed. Daddy, what does virgin mean? Ask your mother. So, I had another question. So why is it that we are conceived through sin when our parents are married and have a sexual relationship and they're who we are? So, Wait, say that, say that again? Well, the priest says that we are conceived in, in sin, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so if our parents are married, yeah. Are we still? No, we're conceived in sin because uh, human sin goes back to the federal headship of Adam. Yeah, we get his guilt. I mean, we inherit we inherit the sinfulness of our parents too. I mean, you know, bad habits, things like that. Uh, my tendency to be, you know, type A plus plus, over aggressive. You know, you meet my grandfather, you're like, ah, oh, that's the problem. And uh, it's genetic, some of it. But our, our guilt and our pollution ultimately comes from the fall of Adam. But Christ is not represented by Adam. Yeah, he's not represented by Adam. If he's conceived with guilt and pollution, if, if he was represented by Adam, then we don't have a savior. Because when Adam fell, the whole human race fell with him. As, as uh, Romans 5 says, through one man's act of disobedience, the, the many be, were condemned, and death is the result of that. So we already have guilt the moment of conception, not because mom and dad had intimate relations, and that is somehow sinful, but because we, that child was under the federal headship of Adam. Christ was not. 
Christ was not part of that. And that's why his, again, virgin birth speaks of that. Adam's the only guy that comes into the world extraordinarily through dust. Christ is the only one who comes into the world extraordinarily through uh, the birth of a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit. Everybody else is born naturally. But your birth and your conception isn't the sinful part. It's the federal headship of, of Adam. That's really important to get. That's really important to get. Um, otherwise, we'll, we'll, we'll go off on this idea of uh, all the virgin birth is just about Jesus being sinless. And then and a lot, if you trace the history of that, you find out that a lot of that comes from this idea that has, you know, marital relations is, is, some, is inherently evil. There was another hand up somewhere. So just a uh, confirmed by Trish and uh, placentas. Maybe she yeah, you should, you should give some commentary on that. That, that might be a little awkward. Chris is, or, uh, uh, Trish is a doula, and so she sees lots of babies born. And, uh, Trish, do you want to speak for yourself? <laughs> that might be better. My voice is kind of off today. No, he, he, he was a little light bulb went off in his head. That when, when you have the, the mother sharing nutrients and oxygen through the placenta with the baby, they don't actually exchange blood. Hmm. So I think the point he was trying to make was that Mary never shared blood with Jesus. Interesting. And he never shared blood with our kids. They, they produce wow. their own blood supply. To, to wow. So Interesting. There's no mixing. Whatever. whatever yeah. I've never heard that brought up before. If there's any deal. But the baby does have, obviously, all the DNA of the mother and all that. So it is, it is incredible to think of God the Son... Uh, being born an infant, helpless, and yet the one helping us. Incredible. So, all right. Well, we'll end there if there's no more, no more questions. And so next week, very much out of order, we'll go back to um, Lord's Day 13. And, um, but let's pray. Our God and our Father, we do thank you for the fulfillment of your promises that came through the prophet Isaiah that a virgin would conceive and bring forth a son, and that you have done that in history, and that it has been witnessed. And we thank you for that son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his sinlessness, for his act of obedience. We thank you that he is the only mediator between you and us. We thank you for his death on the cross and his resurrection. We thank you that we have one to whom we can go to know that we are right with you. We thank you that we have a champion We thank you that all things were done as you promised and as you have testified in your word. We thank you for the virgin birth of Mary. We thank you for these things, Father. And and we ask, O Lord, that we would be comforted by these doctrines, and that we would hold fast to them and pass them on to the next generation. We thank you for the mediatorship and the new covenant of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.